Welcome to the final episode of Beyond Busy of 2017. My name's Graham Alcott and I'm your host for the show. On this episode, I'm talking to Mark Williamson. Mark is the director of an organisation called Action for Happiness. If you're a first-time listener to Beyond Busy, what we do is we explore the topics of productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. We look at the, the intersections and kind of complications between those three big ideas and big themes. And all of it is, in some ways, glorified research for a book that I'm writing, albeit very slowly, on the topic of work-life balance, which is going to be called Beyond Busy. And we are, in this episode, talking to Mark Williamson from Action for Happiness. Worth saying that Action for Happiness and Think Productive are kind of co-collaborators on lots of stuff. Um, we, we've we kind of followed each other's work over the last few years. And I'm just a big fan of Action for Happiness and what they do. And it feels like the right time of year to put this out. It's mid-December. Everyone decides for a short period of time that sort of demented consumerism is the way to make you happy and then realises early in January that they were wrong. Uh, so this feels like a good reminder of what actually makes us happy. As well as putting this out, I'm recording this little intro uh, just before I go to Think Productive's Christmas party, actually. And it's a very miserable, wet December afternoon. So, um, yeah, it feels like the right sort of time of year to be putting out episodes about happiness. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here which I think you're going to find really useful. Uh, I think Mark is a, a very engaging uh, speaker. He comes at a lot of this stuff from both his own experiences and very practical tips and tricks but also with a, a kind of economics perspective with a, a very analytical perspective as well and I think the mix and the blend of that are, are just really uh, useful in terms of his perspective. So we talk about getting out of zero-sum games, we talk about mental health and some of the things that need to happen around education so that we improve our understanding of mental health. We talk about disadvantage, we talk about the link between money and happiness and it's not necessarily the link that you would expect let's just say that uh, we talk about how china has increased in prosperity and decreased in happiness over the last few years and why is that and what can we do differently there uh, and we talk about uh, above all else the 10 keys for happier living so a big part and the kind of central part of action for happiness is uh, sort of philosophy, if you like, is centered around these 10 keys for happier living. So get your pens out, get scribbling, get the 10 keys down, and we'll link to them in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com as well. Uh, but the 10 keys are really useful, practical strategies for being happier and feeling happier in your life. Uh, we'll talk about why I don't like Instagram, uh, why that can sometimes alter our happiness. Uh, and we also talk about Mark's own experiences with uh, with my work, with Think Productive's work and with the book and um, his own struggles around productivity and what he's found useful uh, in his own productivity habits as well. And I think, you know, good productivity breeds happiness and good work-life balance breeds happiness. And uh, there's a massive interconnection between all of these topics, I think. So I think you're going to find this one really interesting. I think uh, if you have anything in your life that you want to change and form positive habits around, and if you are interested in just the idea of being more grateful and being happier in your life, then um, this is a good episode to uh, tune into. So uh, strap in for the next hour, pens at the ready. Uh, you join us at LSE in London. Here's my conversation with Mark Williamson. So I'm here with Mark Williamson. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Very pleased to be with you. And we've just closed all the windows because it was like work. We're at the LSE in London. Uh, I've been in a primary school this morning and then now at the, one of the top universities in the world. So 
moving through the racks very quickly today. But there's a lot of workmen banging outside, so we just closed all the windows and locked ourselves in here. Um, and we're going to talk about happiness. We are. Um, yes. So we should probably start with the question of what do you know about happiness and how come you know about happiness and uh, well I think the lovely thing about this topic is everyone knows everything <laughs> about it and yet we all know nothing um, I'm I guess by way of caveat not a psychologist or a neuroscientist or a philosopher and um, probably come at this more through a, a you know the same sort of layperson interest we all have in what does happiness mean and how do you live a happy life uh, but I've had the great privilege, as we may go on to discuss, to run this movement called Action for Happiness for seven years now. And through that, have links to both in terms of our own, the sort of founders of this, but also many, many other world-leading experts around the world, links to these amazing you know, economists, education experts with an interest in happiness and well-being, neuroscientists, psychologists, behavioral scientists. And through that... I guess I've been able to use something that's always been a bit of a, a skill of mine, which is trying to interpret and piece together complicated sciencey stuff right, okay. into something that maybe the, the public might understand. And yeah. that's really helped me with my own understanding. So I guess I, I have, you know, views on what makes for a happy life and what the science says about it that I hope we can all, you know, do a better job of bringing to public attention because it's this sort of topic that's been stolen by consumer culture in a rather frivolous, trivial way is, you know, a Coke says open happiness. And, yeah. You yeah. know, and, and there's all this kind of, you know, happy when you buy this and happy when you, if you just had this. And of course, we all know that that isn't really the route to lasting happiness. And what's fascinating is looking at how the modern science and the ancient wisdom stack up. And in many ways, they 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 seem to say something rather similar, but in some ways, they're rather different. And I find that really interesting. Interesting. So let's come back to some of the detail around the modern science and the ancient wisdom but let's start with just a real kind of uh sort of nailed down definition if you like so if you had to i presume in your line of work people ask you what does happiness actually mean or what's the definition of happiness or so what do you say around that what's what's the sort of first thing that springs to your mind in terms of your own definition well in simplest terms happiness is about feeling good and there's a few important things around that sense of it being about a feeling so first of all it's subjective yeah uh, and i think that's really important that's not something to be sort of dismissed in fact that's why this is such an important concept because it's about lived experience so i can't tell you how happy you are based on what you earn and where you live and these sort of external characteristics of your life only you can really say how happy you are because it depends also on your relationships and your self-esteem and your hopes for the future so it's it's a very personal lived experience thing that is of course a combination of like the outer world and the inner way of being um, and it, it, you can look at it from different angles you can look at it both from a sort of moment by moment emotional experience and the academics would talk about that sort of affective nature of happiness so positive and negative emotional experiences but it's also both broader and deeper than that so the broader concept is this idea that the academics would call it evaluative sort of well-being so how do I feel about my life overall and I think in many right. ways the most important question that you can ask somebody is sort of how happy are you with life overall and I'm always motivated by the fact that when you ask parents what they want most for their children, you know, you and I are both parents of children, and a very common response is, well, I just want them to be I happy. I just want them to be happy. And, yeah. you know, and what we mean by that is a combination of healthy, safe, love, successful. Yeah. But, you know, it's really, it's in some ways the simplest way we have of expressing this deep conviction we have for our, our loved ones and I, I guess for ourselves too. But it, But it's also deeper than that as well. So there's another sort of component of happiness, which is, 
a bit more Aristotelian, going back to the sort of ancient Greek, uh, Aristotle's view of a, of a life well lived. Mm. So the academics might call that the eudaimonic aspect of happiness. So it's not just about a, an enjoyable life, pleasure in the moment, but it's about a sort of sense of meaning and purpose. And so I, when I think about how I feel and whether I feel happy or not, it's a mixture of what's going on with me right now, sort of current mood. It's a mixture of how's life as a whole, you know, am I safe? How's my you know, work? How is my health, etc.? And it's also a sense of do I feel that what I do matters in some way? So although, you know, actually the question how happy are you seems very simple and it is really simple. Yeah. We bring all these things together and it, in fact nothing could be more important than that, that question. And do you think there's a difference between, so in terms of the feelings, to me there's feelings of excitement mm-hmm. and there's feelings of flow being in the moment with something. I heard a thing recently where someone was saying the only time they really feel in the moment is not when they're meditating but when they're playing football and they've got the ball at their feet and it's sort of opening up and they can just kind of see where the next pass is. And it's like at that moment, you can't think about anything else. So people chase that. I tend in... to be thinking about how I'm about to spoon yeah. it over the crossbar <laughs> and too, like right. miss the ball. Or but something. I think people chase those feelings, don't they? So people chase the the sort of, you know, the feeling of skiing or the feeling of climbing or whatever the thing is that just enshrines you in the moment and just makes you totally mm. in flow at that moment. Um, so do you think there's a difference between that type of feeling and say the feeling of contentment which feels a bit more what you were describing by that life well lived thing yes there is and i think it's reflected in that you can sort of measure the current emotional state uh, and you can also sort of measure or think about the kind of overall feeling of you have about your life as a whole and i think um probably when it comes to making priorities in terms of life choices and when it comes to setting you know, national policy to maximise people's well-being, that sense of how do people feel about their lives overall yeah. is what matters most because yeah. it captures more than just your current experience. And yet a major, both a major contributor to that and also something that's valuable in its own right is this current emotional state. Now, one of the big criticisms of people who want to promote happiness, and we have to deal with this often, is this idea that are you saying that it's wrong to be unhappy or what about negative emotions? And of course... Nobody is saying mm, that right. we should be getting rid of unhappiness because unhappiness is the perfectly natural and right emotional reaction, you know, whether that's, well, in fact, negative, all negative emotions have sensible reasons to experience them. So anger is a response to when you're know, being wronged and sadness is a response to loss and, um, you know, uh, your fear is a response to, to sort of danger. These are naturally evolved emotional responses. It's not about shutting them out or pretending we don't have them really a good life a happy life is about learning to deal constructively whatever emotional experiences we're having so when we're dealing with loss or we've screwed something up it's about well how can i be resilient and respond to that in a constructive way and when it's that Mm. moment of as you said kind of experiencing a flow whether that's on the football pitch or meditating it's like well how can i maximize the number of these moments of connection and being here and experiencing that that real uh, connection with what I'm doing. Because actually, when you have more of those moments in your life, you tend to have higher overall life, life satisfaction, more of a sense that life overall is going well. Yeah. So it's not about trying to so much shut out or, or even chase after any particular emotional experience. It's about having a, a, a sort of balanced approach. And this is why I love and believe strongly that meditation and mindfulness are a big part of happy living, because it's sort of about getting away from judging and chasing after yeah, things and more about yeah. saying well how are things right now how do i feel and how can i respond to that in the wisest possible way there's also a really interesting interplay between between the expectation of what what a life well lived or what happiness looks like for you um, versus versus the sort of personal experience so obviously people in 
a country where, uh, say if you're in, so I lived in a village in Uganda, no electricity, no running water, very kind of basic provision of everything really. Um, But everyone there was really happy because they're comparing themselves to the person next door who has the same as them. And no one ever really looked at that as being, this isn't the way that we should live or we should feel unhappy. If someone from the UK was planted in that environment, they would probably immediately be like, oh, this sucks. I don't have Wi-Fi. Mm. So there would just be an immediate disconnect between what your expectations of a happy or well-lived life have would you be. seen um i mean i'm sure you and listeners are familiar with maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah, this idea yeah. of, you know basic shelter and so on i don't know if you've seen the, the slightly bastardized version oh of the that. one where they put the wi-fi underneath food yeah but I'm does that, that but I, it's a really really important point and in fact there's a lot of philosophical debate about this yeah. but um so i think one of the interesting things here is that this idea of people wanting to live a good life is a universal human desire and just because the challenges we face in the modern Western world where you might say that stress at work and mental health issues and feeling isolated might be yeah. some of the major challenges to our well-being or inequality, for example. And then you look at, say, a remote African developing country and you, you might say, well, actually here it's about health infrastructure and access to, you know, uh, you know, food and life's essentials and, and so on. I mean, you know, this is not that these are different happiness journeys. It's just that actually this, in order to fulfill this universal instinct to live a good life, the particular challenges we're dealing with in those environments are rather different but still what everyone wants is to feel safe to have life's basic needs uh, met to feel connected to have a sense of purpose and and so i think it's absolutely understandable that you can often have that experience you talked about where you go to a poorer country and go oh my goodness everyone here is happy Uh, and this is because of course you can have many of the other things that contribute to a good life like a sense of spiritual connection and being involved in a community having a real strong purpose even if you're dealing with quite serious poverty and major health issues and so on but it is wrong to say oh look at the happy poor there's no connection between income and money because on average when you look at countries and income levels and well-being richer countries are without question happier on average than poorer countries so you will always find examples of the happy poor surviving in awful conditions but that it doesn't reflect, uh, you know, on, on when you look at it on, on aggregates, so, you know, the happiest countries aren't the Bhutans of this world where they do have a major focus on promoting happiness, but still have a very kind of rural and challenging lifestyle. The happiest countries are the, are the Scandinavian countries where they have both modern economic developed society, but also great fairness and great kind of yeah. you know, provision yeah. of um, um, public services and levels of trust and cooperation and so on. So, um the amount so of times on this podcast that it, it comes yeah. back to, oh, the Scandinavians, they're going to well, be so yeah. right. Well, they're they, so annoying. You know, and then you meet Scandinavians, you'll tell you otherwise. <laughs> yeah. But um, but we, should, we have to be careful of this idea of the happy yeah. poor. Yeah. There is something really wise but in I, there. I, I wasn't necessarily trying to um, make that argument, but I think the, there's something interesting. So you said before that happiness is is defined in the subjective. Everybody's view of what happiness means and how they feel is down to them. Yes, you ask But it is also massively effect, yes. influenced by the... Because your expectation is really based on what you see around yes. you and how you compare, I guess, how you compare yourself to other people who are like you. So in, in that sense, you could make the same argument that someone in the 1930s in the UK would have a very different sort of life expectancy or a different view of their health or a different view of what kind of uh, leisure they pursuits they would have versus someone now in the yeah. UK. So it, so there is like, even though it is subjective, there is a, to tackle it, you do also have to 
either lower the expectations of society so that everybody measures themselves as above the line and becomes happier, or you need to yeah raise spot expectations on. and facilitate people to then spot be able on. to do that, right? Um, so you're, you're, I mean, one of the most obvious aspects of the really important point you're making is that what's sometimes called the sort of hedonic treadmill, this idea that as we grow in, in our incomes and our wealth and be able to you know, buy things and improve our quality of life, have bigger houses and higher salary and, and, and whatever the consumer world can provide for us, you know, we very quickly adapt. And we're perhaps more interested in our relative position in the pecking order than we are in our absolute position. And this is what economists call a zero-sum game. And in fact, while we build societies and think about progress both collectively and individually in terms of that game of where am I relative to others, we're never really going to create a happier, more fulfilling way of living because, you know, as one person goes up, another comes down. It's inherent. So the real solution, both personally and collectively, to a more fulfilling way of living is to get out of these zero-sum games and into what you might consider a positive-sum game, which is how do we maximise or increase our overall levels of well-being? And well-being isn't one of those things where, you know, if someone else's goes up, yours necessarily goes down. Actually, when you live in a society where more people are psychologically well, you have things that benefit everyone. You have, well, you often were likely to see less inequality, but you'll see certainly higher levels of trust, more social connection, more generosity, mm. probably less corruption, lots of other stuff, better health. We know that psychological state of mind affects our physical health and our habits and so on as well. So actually, it is a genuine, and I hate to use this phrase, win-win. You know, it, is, it really is. If we can find ways to help individuals become more uh, at peace with themselves and more psychologically well yeah. uh, and do that yeah. en masse, for example, through changes to our, our healthcare provision to give greater focus for mental health, changing our, our education priorities to help children learn skills for life, not just you know, academic attainment there were kind of really big picture things we can do that would genuinely improve our overall well-being that could become less about oh how am i doing relative to others with salary and become more about you know how do we build a better society together i find that really exciting yeah and sort of judging the success of life or a life i lived is often done on that on the base level people look at what possessions they've accumulated and what their salary is and what house they're yes. in but on the national level, the same trap happens, yes. right? Where nationally people measure the progress of a country based on, oh, is GDP going up and by how much and how much economic growth do we have and, and whatever. So do you think you have to, on that level, switch into more of a thing about measuring happiness? Do you remember, do you remember David Cameron did a thing about let's measure happiness? I was there when he launched it, yeah. Yeah, so, so he said... Um, something that was really rather remarkable for a politician to say at the time. Um, He talked about this before he became um, Prime Minister. He said, well, he was sort of leader of the Conservative Party before they were in government. And he said, there's more to life than money, effectively. You know, we Mm. should be thinking about progress, not just in terms of growing the economy, but in terms of people's lives, which I fully agree with. I mean, the sad thing and the criticism he got um, was that then and, and indeed still, you know, policy is still focused on how to maximise growth and, and maintain jobs and grow the economy more so than it is in wellbeing. But yeah. the principle of what he said was very important. And he then instituted the Office for National Statistics in the UK measuring this. So we've now had <clears throat> five years of the ONS at a major level measuring yeah. uh, questions like how happy are you with your life and how anxious are you and so on, alongside all these other measures around income and employment and health. And, so and how on. do they do that? They just go out and poll yeah, people? Yeah, so they do it in a, yeah, they do it as part of something called the, the household, uh, British Household Survey which includes questions about all kinds of aspects about your financial decisions and so on. So I think 200,000 people in a representative sample across the UK every year are asked these questions that now include happiness and well-being as well as these more objective measures. And it's allowed some really, really interesting observations to come out 
for example, although you get regional variations in these levels, actually in any section of society, any geographic area and any type of work, you see these huge disparities between people who are really quite struggling, for example, with serious mental health challenges or social isolation, and people who are thriving. And it's much less related to income and class than you might imagine. Really? Which is, which is yeah. um, you know, th- those trends are there, but actually there are factors around our early childhood experiences, our connection, our communities wow. you know, that, that matter in many ways more than income. So I, I have this idea that you know, um, disadvantage, we tend to think of it purely in economic terms, you know, help, helping alleviate poverty. I think we should be thinking of disadvantage in terms of well-being in a broadest sense, which is about addressing social isolation. It's about addressing, you know, purposelessness, people feeling lost, people feeling disconnected. It's about helping people who are dealing with, you know, major stress, anxiety, loss, as much as it is helping people who are dealing with lack of income. All of these things yeah. matter, but we've yeah. got a rather... Everything's too economically focused. So this is, you know, what you were saying is exactly right, that um, this obsession we have with maximising our personal wealth is also true at a political level. And we find politicians saying stuff like, we must stay ahead in the global race. You know, China, mm. India, all these countries that invest in education, we're going to fall behind. And my question is always, race to what? Yeah. Is this race to permanently working, busy oblivion? Yeah. Or is it a race towards higher quality of life? Because one of the interesting things is China, who's had this incredible growth. If you look at measurements of happiness and well-being in China, if anything, they've gone down as on an average level as China's huge boom has happened, you know, which is with all kinds of things around inequality and air quality and, mm. you know, kind of things. So, so there's... Increasingly, people around the world are realizing there's more to life than growing the economy. And you now yeah. see strange things like the Dubai government trying to prioritize the happiness of its people for one of the first sort of um, market economies to really focus that on that. And then there are now these UN reports all around the world comparing the happiness of countries. But it's still it's still not really top of the agenda. And I think that's a real missed opportunity. And it felt like it felt like that thing with David Cameron. I mean, me as a cynic viewed it as well obviously the figures didn't look very good for him so he just brushed it under the carpet a little bit that was my yeah, yeah fair enough that that was my sort of cynical view and I did I must confess I didn't really look into it much more than that but it it certainly didn't catch fire in the way that when it was launched people were expecting it to as a thing that people would come back to is that is that fair to say yeah i i actually think the reason it's not got as much attention yet is rather unexpectedly the well-being numbers have either gone up slightly or or been fairly flat since right. he instituted it, which is yeah. rather remarkable considering some of the things that have happened in that time. Mm. It's been a difficult financial time, you know, and of course people have been, you might argue, a portion of people are pretty unhappy with some global events recently and, you know, EU referendum and so on. And yet actually there has been a slow, re, slow but, you know, actually measurable increase in UK well-being over that period, largely because he you might, again, cynically say rather cleverly introduce this at a real economic low point. And although we talk about there being many more things to happiness than money, actually one of the biggest drivers of misery is unemployment. Yeah. And and the, the, the highest level of unemployment we've had in this period has been at the beginning of that journey when it was just after the crash. Right. And so the fact okay. that, I mean, in many ways, some people, I heard someone saying recently that Gordon Brown saved the world by stopping the mass unemployment type problem that you know you've seen after major recessions in previous periods you know by 
main, avoiding that happening and by then increasing employment, the government has actually been done something that helps well-being. Yeah. Now that's really, really unpalatable to many on the left of centre, you know, and, and I find myself at, at odds with. But I see so many things in our society that feel at odds with improving national well-being. Mm. And yet, I do passionately believe that when you ask people how is your life and you take that across the country as a whole, you've got to listen to what they're saying. It's the most democratic thing we can do is to say to yeah. people, "How yeah. do you feel about your lives?" And then go, "Oh God, it's, they're, they're saying that things are at least." No worse than they were last year. That's that's yeah. encouraging. So um, you know, I, I think we will see the first time this falls uh, dramatically, and these numbers will continue to change. People people will generate a lot of media attention. They'll be like, "Why is this government making the country more miserable?" And right, you know, yeah. and that, it will yeah. rear its head. And I do genuinely believe that in ten years' time, many many leading countries will be measuring well-being and reporting on it in much more open ways than just you know in the same way they are about unemployment and um, GDP. So maybe the figures year to year have just been pretty unremarkable yes. even if it's rising it's not I think that's rising that fair. much but if there was a really remarkable upturn or downturn then you think it would be a new story uh, absolutely I mean about. what are the countries that are lowest in the global league tables of of um, of well-being it's the sub-Saharan Africa countries where it makes mm. you, you know, or, or countries in civil war and major conflict the countries that have had the biggest falls in well-being in recent memory have been like Syria and Egypt and other countries that you can see this is, makes perfect sense so yeah, it's kind it's, of obvious it's, it's, it's yeah. all, you know, this, is, yeah. this is not decoupled from reality yeah. this stuff completely mirrors what we'd you know, you'd expect to find mm. so I you know if, if there was a major disaster or huge boon to the UK from a change you, you would see that absolutely in the well-being data yeah, and um, the other thing I just wanted to mention about the link between happiness and money mm. as well was I read a thing a while ago about Michael Evis, who runs Glastonbury Festival. Yes. Do you know about this? So he pays himself... He There's a figure which I think is about £60,000 a year or something, and it's it's the, the sort of line that has been identified as the line where any increase in salary from that point is just a very marginal to zero return. So, you know, money does make you a little bit happier, and a little bit happier, and a little bit happier the more the more and more you get of it up to that certain point, up to that line. And then after that, it just tails off into just kind of insignificance and there's just no reason. So he's kind of taken it on upon himself to say, right, I'm just going to pay myself the optimum salary for happiness. I could pay myself a lot more because I run the Glastonbury Festival, but I'll actually just give a lot more of that to charity and do other things with it, but that's what I'm going to... It's very, it's very wise thing, and, right? and sends a really clear, important message. There's quite a lot of academic argument about where that line is and whether it's to do with our emotional state currently or our expectations for the future and so on. But, um, but yes, uh, it's absolutely true to say that uh, once our basic needs are met, other factors in our lives matter much more for our happiness than our income. Yeah. In particular, our, sorry, in the external world, our relationships... And sort of more broadly, the way we feel purposeful and connected and what we give and what we contribute to and you know, the work we do. But, but it, perhaps even more importantly is our kind of our, the inner lived experience we have and our mental health in particular. Yeah. So it's really, really encouraging to see the massive increase in the narrative around mental health in the media, even just in the last couple of years. And many people from, from Prince Harry and others being much more open about kind of mental health issues. That conversation has really shifted. And I think. You know, we work really hard with Action of Happiness, and we might come on to talk about this, about you know helping everybody think in constructive ways about their own well-being and the well-being of others. At one end of the spectrum, that's about alleviating the really severe problems around you know, stress, anxiety, depression, major mental health issues. But we all have, just in the same way, we all have a level of physical health. We all have a level of mental health, and it varies yeah. across our lives. And yeah. sometimes we're thriving, and other times we're really struggling. And getting out of this, like, you know, it's embarrassing to talk about how 
I'm coping with problems at the moment and just going, do you know what, I'm really struggling right now or I'm really stressed or I've been down since my you know, my partner got ill or whatever it is. That Just the ability to talk about the full remit of our mental lives as much as our physical lives, I think that's going to be yeah, continuing. Sure. And in fact, you know, the big trend over the next 10 or 20 years is going to be in this uh, sort of the mental world, I think. So on that end of the spectrum, the sort of deficit end, you know, being able to talk about mental ill health in much more constructive ways. On the positive end, in the same way that, you know, 60 years ago, it would be crazy to talk about going to the gym to work out. Nobody really had a concept of physical fitness and staying fit. You know, that's obviously changed dramatically. Over the next decade, we're going to see many, many more people talking about sort of mental fitness and, you know, meditation and sort of other activities we can do that are the equivalent for our minds of yeah. going to the gym to work out. And like, how can we do things day to day our sleep habits, our relationship habits are, you know, the little exercises we do that, that actually really, really affect our day-to-day functioning. I'm really excited by this. Like, I think it will be, a, you know, when we look back in a few decades' time, this will be the big change that's happened in modern society. Yeah, for sure. So let's get really practical for a minute. And this might bring us on to Action for Happiness yeah, sure. as well. But in terms of practical things that people can do that the science suggests will make you happier mm. like are, are there really simple things that are that cut and drive if you do this regularly you'll just definitely be happier are, are there a, a set number of things like that there are but with the caveat that there's not a prescriptive list so yeah. we are all uniquely different and one of the most fundamental things about our knowledge of of happiness and human needs is is the need for autonomy yeah like nobody right. gets happy when they're told what to yeah. do um, so when so, you choose some of the things on yeah, this list, so we, we present this as a framework. So yeah. we, we've developed something called the 10 Keys to Happier Living. Sort of spells an acronym called Great Dream. There's all kinds of resources online if people would like to find out more. That comes from a pretty extensive review of the latest um, scientific research about the things that are broadly within our control that do tend to make a difference. Yeah. But it's not a Ten Commandments. It's more like, here's a menu. Some of these things you might do anyway. Find what works for you. And then if you do more of yeah. that un- of your own volition rather than because you feel you've been told to... Then that's probably going to help. So, so I can we'll just really a, briefly we'll put run a link to the, the ten keys on sure. the show notes for this, but maybe just maybe pick up on some of the ones that you. Yeah, think well, are I mean, either... I could even very briefly run through all ten of them. So, that, uh, can you do all ten just from memory? Yeah, sure. So, okay, so cool. great dream is the acronym. Great is the first five, and they're things that are generally to do with day to day habits. G is forgiving. Yeah, that's about when we're kind to others. That's great for our own well being. There's a very much a kind of. Um, sort of virtuous circle around when we do things for others it doesn't just give them a boost but it actually lights up the same sort of mm. reward circuits in our brain so they help us high all these ideas of volunteering yeah. and so on but just simple acts of kindness really makes a difference the R of great dream is relationships relating perhaps the single most important contributor to our happiness is our relationships and there are lots of things we can consciously do to improve our relationships from actively listening to what people are saying to responding constructively when they share things with us to just kind of making time for people and remembering to put people before things, which we tend to get a bit wrong in, yeah. in the modern life. Yeah. The E is about exercising and physical activity. It's not just great for our sort of physical health. It's brilliant for our mental well-being. When you're outdoors, when you're active, when you're, you know, raising your pulse levels, it's also an amazing antidote to stress and depression. Mm. It's kind of it's a mood-shifting thing, endorphins and so on. The A is about awareness, which is really about living mindfully. So just being able to be aware of how you're feeling, what's going on around you. So it's that pause take a breath notice how you feel notice the environment you're in make wiser choices easy to say quite hard to do but you know obviously a massive trend in in mindfulness in in recent years the um the t is for trying out this idea of learning through life and not just in terms of academic learning but hobbies you know joining a choir you know getting outdoors and experiencing a different route to work trying a new skill this idea not just of 
um, you know, long-term changes, but just every day going, what can I do that's a bit different? How can I... That's know, a nice one. Yeah, it's, re- it's really yeah. backed up by the literature, which is actually when we, when we try new things, it really does open up. Mm. It sort of takes us outside our comfort zone, but you know, in ways that really build our efficacy and our sort of self-worth. So that's the first five. And those are all things you can act on every day. You can do something kind. You can connect with someone. You can be active. You can pause and take a breath and you can try something new. The second five spell the word dream. And they're a bit more about your values and your approach to life. Um, so they're sort of a bit more philosophical and less easy to do day to day, but they really matter. So the D is about direction. So it's like, where am I heading in life? What are my goals? And we tend to think of goals in terms of long-term aims and mm. ambitions, but it also matters day to day. So you will know through your amazing work with Think Productive about the real sense of achievement from like, I've got some stuff I've prioritized today and I've just ticked off those three things I wanted to do. And that's actually a real, a really big contributor to day to day sense yeah. of purpose and functioning. The R is about resilience. So however happy your life is, you will face loss. You will lose loved ones. You will screw stuff up. You know, it's not about pretending that this stuff doesn't happen or ignoring it. It's about saying, how do I have coping strategies for the dark times? Mm. Who do I turn to? What's my technique for dealing with shit when it, you know, stuff happens? Um, the E is for emotion, and in, in particular, this cultivation of positive emotions. So we have a choice. We, we've evolved to be focused on the negative stuff. We have this kind of negativity bias to be looking for what's gone wrong, to what might go wrong. That's natural and is good because it gets us away from danger. But we we also have the opportunity to choose to focus on what's gone well. So this idea of yeah. gratitude and like yeah. each day going, what was good today? I might be really pissed off with what happened and I might be worried about tomorrow, but I can at least stop and go, oh, I spent 10 minutes with my daughter today and had a lovely conversation. Or mm-hmm. I, gosh, wasn't it nice on the route to work that I noticed that, you know, beautiful sunlight through the trees or something just actually consciously noticing the good things as well as the bad things not instead of this is not polyalla naive you know life is perfect it's kind of what i call realistic optimism yeah um and just i went to, to yeah. um i went to an art um sort of degree show thing in brighton yeah. a few months ago and one of the exhibits was this sort of experiential thing where there was this pot full of all these pencils and on the side of the pencils the artist had kind of scrubbed away the colour and then he'd written little kind of mottos on them. And it was like, take a memory pencil. This is here to remind nice. you of a certain thing. And the one I picked out just said, best is now. Yeah. And it sits in my sort of pen tray on my desk. And I probably read it. it. It just catches my eye once every two or three days. And just this idea of best is now. It's yeah. just such a simple lovely little motto. But it, that pencil has changed my life. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I and it's funny how things, these things do change your life. So I, yeah. I was really sceptical about this whole gratitude idea, this whole idea of noticing things that's gone well when I first read about it. Because often in the literature it's talked about this idea of keeping a gratitude journal. Yeah. You know, and I'm a British male, grew up in the Midlands. You know, I never thought <laughs> I'd be keeping a gratitude journal. Um, but actually looked at the evidence on this. And, you know, scientists have done kind of proper randomised placebo-controlled trials like you might do for a medical drug on this idea of every night for even just one week, write down three good things that have gone well that day. And they've done like this proper controlled study looking at the effects as much as six months later. And it's remarkable. Like you see this uplift in people's happiness and and reduction in symptoms of depression from this this tiny activity that takes a couple of minutes a night. So I was persuaded, having seen this, to to experiment with it. And I I love this idea of experimentation. Like however sceptical you are about one of these ideas, give it a go, like yeah. try it out. And yeah. I did this. Yeah. I thought I'd try it for a week. I ended up doing it for like 18 months and I still do it really regularly. Just every night or as close as possible, what's gone well today? And it had a massive impact on my life. It basically made me think, 
you fall, you take so much for granted, you're so mm. blessed, and yet you get caught up in like these little things that are annoying every day, and you just uh, don't notice the fact that like you have three lovely, healthy children, you have a job you care about, you have like you cycled home from work today, and it was nice, and it was like all these little things that we just take for granted when we're worried yeah. about the project yeah. or the argument or the whatever. So it just changed my life, and really was an eye opener. So um, we've actually just developed an app recently called What's Good, which is well, in fact, one of our supporters has built it, which is about building this habit day to day of just recording these things, and I think cool. it's really powerful. I did that on a like a private Tumblr for a while. Oh yeah, yeah, but I would. I think I did that because there wasn't an app, so I definitely won that app. Well, well, I'll send you the link, and, and it's intentionally not one of these share your good things, because of course yeah, there's yeah, not, you yeah. see these memes on Facebook, yeah. people go on and go, here's my great things yeah. today. And this is interesting because it links into the next one of our 10 keys, which is about this idea of acceptance. The last A is A for acceptance, sort of being comfortable with who you are. And one of the problems, I think, with social media is this idea of you compare your, you know, the reality of your life with this glossy Photoshop image that everyone likes to present to their lives is kind of comparing your insides with other people's outsides as I talk about it. And it's really, really toxic, especially for young people. It's like, oh my God, everyone's life's better than mine and so on. And so when you see these things of people sharing their good things, I think well-intentioned about spreading gratitude on social media, I think it's dangerous because it's like, oh, look at how good my good things are. Look at my lovely house. Look at my beautiful (laughs) family. And like, whilst that's really good for your own well-being, it's actually potentially quite toxic for other people's and this idea of perfect lives so i like the idea of gratitude being a very personal thing it's not about showing off it's about saying what am i grateful for for its own sake not because i want to impress somebody else yeah my Um, heart sank a a year or so ago when i heard a comedian talk about the idea of hashtag grateful as almost being hijacked by uh, it's been hijacked to become the most sophisticated kind of humble brag. Yeah, I think in that's a way, right? It's just true. like, look at my amazing house, hashtag grateful. And it's like that, the gratitude is your excuse to be able to bring it back around again and talk about it. Oh, again. I just think, well, I've not oh, seen it quite oh, yet. I, I, I can relate to that. And I think um, this is a personal habit that makes a big difference. It's not about, um, about the appearance you create for others. But it is worth noting that, of course, why is it that we're so obsessed with brands? Why is it that we love to earn more and consume more and mm. have more? It's not because those things really of their intrinsic value. We tell ourselves that we want the best things because they're functional and intrinsically useful. But it's really, if you if you peel back all the layers, it's about this idea that every human being wants to be loved and appreciated fundamentally. And so for us, brands and the image we portray are the best proxy to the world of I'm valued. You know, I matter yeah. because I, you know, or the reason I care about you seeing my nice house or noticing that I've got the latest whatever or that I'm successful in my work is I just want to be seen and valued and actually when we can be a bit more at peace with ourselves for who we are without needing that external affirmation so much of this noise drifts away yeah and that was a big it's a big shift for me because i mean my i was with hindsight always a people pleaser i mean one of my reasons i was successful in corporate life i think was i could adapt to what people wanted and make it happen but basically Mm. i was trying to please others and it was only when I kind of let go of that, or I, I call myself a recovering people pleaser, because I've not entirely <laughs> shifted it yet. But, you know, when I took on this job with Action of Happiness, a lot of my friends and loved ones, my wife included, were like, what are you doing? Why would you do something you enjoy? Why would you do this weird happiness thing? Mm. And for me, that was quite liberating to be able to say, I believe in this something, something so much that I'm prepared to almost be laughed at or kind of yeah. considered a bit strange by others. That was a real breakthrough for me, because I'd spent most of my life until that point going, I want to do the things that people think are cool and make me look good. And letting go of that was quite life-changing again. Yeah. And in terms of, uh, let's let's come on and talk about you and your route into sure, this as well. Sure. But uh, just 
before we finish on the ten keys, and yes, I missed the last one. In fact, but um, oh yeah, go on, do that. So the last one is the the M of great dream. The 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 final tenth one is is meaning. We talked about it earlier on, but this idea of what gives you sense of purpose, and of course, it, it does really differ from different people. And it might be in some people. In the case of my mum, their, their, you know, their religious faith is a great mm. source of meaning and, and um, drive in life. But for others, it might be, in my case, it's the conviction I have about the work I do and sort of how that potentially helps others. For many, it might be their connection with the natural world or their values and they, they pass on to the next generation and so on. So it doesn't really matter what it is, but this idea of having something that's bigger than yourself. Yeah. And that, I think, yeah. is a big challenge in modern Western culture, which is so individualistic that in some Absolutely, cases we yeah. let go of that. Yeah collective like I'm defined through my connection to others not my individual success so that was the 10 keys and I yeah. took a little while and isn't it funny it. also how so uh, there was an Adam Curtis thing you know Adam Curtis the filmmaker yes. and he was being interviewed and he was saying the all the big movements these days are basically individuals railing against something mm. because everyone's so individualistic that they're not willing compromise their individualism to sign up to collective sort of dreams or collective ideologies of what makes things good Mm. right so the brexit thing was a we don't like the eu the trump thing was essentially we don't like the establishment or Mm -hmm. mexicans or whatever else trump was supposed to be a fear of the other us and them yeah but all, all of that is about individuals saying i feel in fear and let's let's dismantle something but it's very Adam Curtis was saying it's very difficult now to construct things that people are willing to sacrifice their individualism in order to be part of in that way I just oh, thought that was an that's interesting really interesting I, so I I sort of agree with that but I, I am struck back to if you look at the previous US election and, or the previous sort of change of presidency when Obama came in there was a real movement around a collective hope there. Yeah. and, and yeah. people did unify and come together around something and you could argue that other things like that have made really positive changes in many other areas. But uh, so I think what we've seen recently reflected in both the EU referendum and a wider populism responses to various issues is been a collective fight or flight response. So coming back to the psychology, we know that, you know, human beings have a kind of fight or flight instinct when under pressure. Mm. And we also have a kind of nurture and collaborate instinct when we're less under pressure. And these are two really conflicting sides of human nature. That's interesting. And what's happened and I think it's do- this does, I mean, you know, if you look back to the 30s depression, that led in many ways to the Second World War yeah. because of it was a yeah. huge response to kind of, you know, that's, that's, that's a little bit of a, a grand statement. But, you know, when we feel under threat, we are more likely to lash out and fear the other and see the bad in the other. And um, I think in some ways the global economic uncertainty that has happened in the last decade has been partly responsible for this sort of populist response of like, oh, I feel under pressure, so therefore I want to lash out the, the, to the other, whoever the other are. It might be the immigrants, it might be the, you know, it might be the people who are taking my jobs in whatever way. It might be the kind of these bureaucrats in distant lands who are mm. making decisions about us. But basically, it's a psychological thing around we are feeling under pressure. And actually, yeah. I think the the role of culture, in fact, in some ways, the role that we're trying to do with action for happiness is this: let's promote the good side of human nature. Because there are, I mean, there's a very strong evolutionary, you know, um, survival of the fittest thing. But even Darwin, who's, you know, largely seen as discovering the survival of the fittest thing, he never really talked about it in those terms. He talked of it. He actually observed that it's those most collaborative and nurturing communities that thrive most. Mm, yeah. And actually, when we create the structures, as we, you know, we did in response to, say, the Second World War, we created a bunch of institutions to try and nurture collaboration rather than conflict. And, you know, it has been, with some major exceptions, remarkably peaceful since those major conflicts of the last century. Yeah. Um, 
And, and, you know, we can build structures that really enhance the other side of human nature. So I think when we encourage compassion, when we encourage trust, when we stop and listen to each other, we, you know, so many better things happen. So this, this fear of the other thing makes me so sad. And I have to say the media plays a massive role. The media stokes up this narrative. Most people feel relatively safe and relatively connected and at peace with where they live themselves. But they have a really distorted negative view of the rest of the world. Yeah. Because it's seen through the lens of Murdoch's press and others yeah. that, you know, create this fear. Well, it's no surprise that the areas that have the least immigration tend to be the areas that lash out most against immigration. It's interesting, isn't it? It's more of fear than a reality. In a so way. it's not about yeah. what they're seeing in their community, it's about what the media is telling them is coming. I think you're right. Or it's sort of coming up the road yeah. or whatever. Um, so in terms of the 10 keys, how do you get... So that's, you know, those are all things where you could delve into the practicalities sure. of each of those 10 and there could be things. How do you get that to people? So what's Action for Happiness is... Uh, sort of method of delivery in a way of, of getting getting those messages and that practical uh, framework out to people to help yeah. them. Yeah, so this is, this is a question about um, something we've, we've been thinking about a lot over the years since we launched and it's really partly about behaviour change and it's about um, social change and how you sort of bring these things together um, in, in communities and so I think when we launched this we had a rather simplistic idea, which is a bit like what you sort of just asked me, which is how do we get this information to people? And it's back to, I think, what even advertisers used to believe was the way you change behaviour, which is give people information that changes their beliefs and that motivates action. You know, so we used to think, tell smokers that smoking is bad for them. Uh, they go, oh my goodness, that's awful. And then they change their habits and that's all fine. And of course, we know that's a flawed model of behaviour change. Information in its own right doesn't shift behaviour. In fact, actually, what does shift behaviour more is that when you get people to act in a certain way, even without them understanding why, that they have an emotional experience or, uh, you know, some kind of reaction to that change, like do an act of kindness, like go and visit a a lonely neighbour, like stop and be grateful at the end of each day or take a mindful breath. These things, you have a reaction to them and then you have a sort of cognitive response that says, oh, that was interesting, I might do that again. And then it becomes potentially a a habit-forming change. And so... Um, I'm fascinated by this question of how do you help people make lasting changes in their lives? And so whereas I think we, we thought originally our model with Action Happiness was give people great information, we create the 10 Keys framework, got a really you know, resource-intensive website, you know, thousands of people connecting with it. Uh, actually, that isn't what we're trying to do. What we've discovered is, is our, the real model for movement building is start with individual motivation, tap into that, and then bring people together in face-to-face well, and online communities to help them change together. So, again, slightly deflected from your question for a moment, but we, we mentioned Maslow earlier, and that there were, as well as there were core physical needs we all have as human beings, we also have core psychological needs. And they are something called self-determination theory. But the three core needs we all have psychologically, one is for autonomy, I mentioned that earlier, another is for relatedness, and another is for mastery, this idea of getting better at things. And so actually everything we do with Action Happiness is to try and use those um, needs, if you like, to help people find the motivation to, to do something. So in many ways, we're trying to do what, what Gandhi sort of said in that famous quote about being the change you want to see in the world. So help an individual sort of recognise that they care about their own happiness and happiness of others. Give them the autonomy to kind of make their own t- choices. It's not about a prescriptive solution. Connect them with others. That's the relatedness. Bring them together in small groups or online communities, which we do a lot of. And then give them a sense of mastery by saying, do something, even a little thing, Notice how that goes. Talk to others about it. Track it online. Do whatever you do. Build a habit around it. So mm. 
That, that is what's behind the, the theory of almost everything we do. So we have volunteers running community courses. They bring people together, let's say, every week for eight weeks is one of our, um, um, our flagship courses called Exploring What Matters. It's a, converse, a community conversation for eight weeks in groups of about 15 people. I heard really life changing. Des- described as the alpha course, but without the religious cell. So yes. it's like the sort of meaning of life. A bit like the church is out, of course, without yeah. God, or someone else described it as a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous without the addiction. You know, huh. it's, it's this idea of <laughs> getting people together face-to-face in small groups for conversations that matter, yeah. in a safe space where you can talk about the real stuff. And I, coming back to this idea of, you know, what do we talk about as a British male or indeed British female, uh, you know, we're very good about talking about the football, the shopping, the weather, the mm. house prizes, the kind of tedious, meaningless stuff. And we're very bad, or often, I mean, I certainly was, not very good at talking about how do you cope when things go wrong? What really gives you a sense of meaning? You know, um, how, mm. what do you feel about your relationships? Does it, you know, is your work fulfilling? What, you know, what could make your community better? These are the questions that really matter. And we don't talk about them very much. So in our groups, we're giving people that platform to come together, have a friendly conversation. And people come out of it saying, well, they, they love lovely things like that was life changing. I've built friendships that will last, which is obviously great. But what we actually do, we're in the middle of a proper randomized control trial of these courses at the moment, which is, uh, quite hard work, but really interesting when you get academic groups okay. doing a proper study of it. But we um, we look at sort of before and after measures of personal well-being, and they go up quite substantially. Interestingly, the, the increase we see in life satisfaction appears to be uh, on a par with, if not bigger, than the sort of increase you get when you go from being single to being married. Or, you know, it's it's bigger than the effect of like if you go from the negative effect of going from you know being employed to unemployed or one of these major life changes. So mm. we don't know yet whether that lasts, but yeah. there's really something really substantial happening. But we also measure people's pro-social uh, values. So we say, does your attitude change? And we find that people come out of these courses actually kinder. They're more likely to be compassionate to others. They're more trusting of others. And that for me is even more exciting because it's about not only have I become happier, but I've become more inclined to care for others. So in, yeah. in some ways, it's trying to address this fear of the other, this social breakdown thing that we're seeing where we become less trusting. And I, I just think that in some ways, if we could do that at a mass scale, that would build a, better, a really substantially different yeah. cultural yeah. narrative. So, so we, 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 you know, with the model is about individuals making change happen. So with these amazing volunteers that run these courses, we also have primary school teachers bringing our resources into schools to help with kids with it. We have policymakers where, where, you know, where they have that influence trying to change local authority policy, even at the national level, you know, people trying to influence health policy and education policy. We have people in organizations saying, can you come in and help us change the culture? You know, you guys with Think Productive do fabulous work in companies, but you know, some of those same people are saying, not only how do we be more productive, but how can we cope better with stress? How can we create an environment where people feel more meaningful? And I think we'll see more and more of that as well. So that's what it's all about. We've certainly not cracked it yet, but we've got this amazing community of about 100,000 sort of members who've taken a personal pledge and are involved in in an online community, I think, of about a million now, which is, you know, a real privilege. It's also, you know, really hard for us as a tiny charity to respond to the level of demand as well. So we are, you know, know, my own well-being has been under threat over the years. But how do you (laughs) deal with this? You know, this movement of people who really want to change the world. Yeah. And it's inspiring, but also a major sort of work-life balance headache as well. And we were talking just before I press record on here about how, um, say, if you're really stressed, then everyone's like, well, you're supposed to be really happy. Yeah. Why are you really stressed? <laughs> I suppose the more demand comes, it's a beautiful irony of what you do. Well, my, my wife, Kate... has an impact on your own well-being. My wife, Kate, um, who um, is very wise in many ways, when I first 
thought about taking on this role, she said, now listen, Sunshine, if you're going to do this director of happiness job, whatever the hell that means, <laughs> and you come yeah. home at 10.30 every night really miserable, that ain't, that ain't happening, is it, really? <laughs> so, I, you know, she's kept me... Um, you know, honest on this and I you know so for example although I have worked perhaps in many ways harder than I've ever worked even in corporate life mm. on trying to deliver this because I'm passionate about it um, you know I've, I do keep weekends sacred and I try and always make time for the children and time for my health with cycling and friendship and other things as well as you know the conviction of the work and you know actually I, w- I would say that some of the the ideas behind Think Productive have helped me with that more recently as well when I discovered them so I'm grateful for that yeah so let's let's talk about that so you so our worlds have sort of collided a few times in um, recent months and I've been in touch with a couple of people down in Brighton mm. around the happy cafes I'm going to go and do yeah. a talk for the happy cafes oh good in, stuff of Brighton in I think in January and Thank you um, for that. yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, the uh, and you met Vanessa King, who wrote our ten keys. Vanessa, as well, yeah, um, and and uh, also Stan, who's Stan in Brighton as yes. well. And it feels like there's this little network that I've suddenly tapped into of all these interesting, uh, connected, motivated people taking this really interesting stuff. Mm to the community and to cafes and you know having these conversations in different spaces which I find really exciting and I think there's a big crossover I think there's a, a huge emphasis as as you'll know with Think Productive's work on attention and mm. on how how you mindful and you know and and also just at the very base level just around being aware of where the improvement opportunities are I just think yeah. there's, there's something about sort of seeing and having motivation having the autonomy to change is just huge in both what you guys are doing and what we're doing. So your work, your sort of interaction with Think Productive. So tell me about that and what has that meant for you in terms of your own, I guess, in, let's, let's ask, how has being involved with Think Productive helped your happiness? Well, <laughs> it, it really has. Um, so let me come back to how, because yeah. that's interesting. But I'll, I'll just, I will answer that question about the story because that's interesting. So one of the things we do to support our mission is put on big public events, trying to engage as many people as possible around you know, a whole range of themes to do with happiness and well-being, from relationships to resilience to mental health to, you know, um, oh yeah, compassion and various other topics. And, uh, you know, as part of that, I've had the great privilege of, you know, having people like the Dalai Lama, who's become our patron yeah, over here with us, yeah. which is just a, such a, an amazing experience. And then Marty Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology and, and many others. And someone who's been coming to quite a few of our events is uh, Matthew Brown, who's part of the, I think, the Think Productive family. And he came up to me after an event and said, I'd love to chat to you because I think what we do is quite similar in some ways. And I thought, oh, okay, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a productivity ninja. And I sort of went, well, I'm not really sure what that even means. Uh, and and you know, if I'm honest, what was going on in my head was like, okay, that sounds like the corporate speak I used yeah. to hear back in the corporate <laughs> yeah. land and reminds me of dull words like productivity that don't really interest me anymore now. I've been yeah. enlightened and left that whole world behind and of course that was me being a bit myopic and I think short-sighted and I met Matthew for a coffee and we talked and what became very clear straight away was really what you guys are talking about is attention management of like mm. what am I focusing on not just right now but in life and in work generally and how do I choose wisely and then live more effectively and that is essentially the essence of happy living because it's about this idea of being conscious being awake and then choosing to be compassionate choosing to be focused choosing to actually to not do things as well as to do things yeah. and, and, and yeah, actually so that I was a, I was woken up to the overlap that I perhaps had been ignoring yeah uh, Matthew very kindly gave me a space on one of the courses and I went on a course that I think Haley ran from your team and 
really enjoyed that and uh, actually ended up making some personal changes around inbox management and some of the stuff. But really enjoyed the exercise of saying, what, what's everything on my plate right now from the I want to make the world a happier place type big issues to like, oh, I really need to, you know, file that thing or... And actually having that whole brain dump of really quite frightening amount of stuff and then going, okay, well, now I can sort of sift through this and piece it together. I must say, on a, on a rather mundane practical note, the thing that's really changed my life m- most is using your idea of a second brain, which I'm assuming mm, your listeners yeah. are probably familiar with, of having somewhere to dump the stuff and realising the liberation of getting that out of my head. And I hadn't realised, noticed how much of that was sort of taking up mental space. What's your tool? But, so what I use, use Nosby okay. as one of the tools that I think was mentioned. Uh, I'm sure there are many other ways of doing it. But the thing that's changed me so much is that having effectively a to-do list linked with calendar, so a per-day to-do list. So parked inside my second brain, I probably have 500 things that I need to do at some point, which is quite daunting. If I saw them in one list, I'd be like, oh my God, I need to go and sit down for a week and just breathe. Yeah. Um, but because it's by day, and I know that that thing doesn't need to be done till next Thursday, and that thing doesn't need to be done till January, it's really liberating. So I can focus on, like, here are the things that I know are important today, and here are the things I know are important this week. And actually, I can move that thing to like two weeks' time because it just doesn't matter right now. And that's sort of obvious, and I maybe should have been doing that for years. But having the technique to go, no, 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 I don't need to worry about that now. I'm just getting it out of my brain space. That's been hugely, hugely helpful. So cool. on one level, that's got nothing to do with happiness. And yet, actually, it's allowing me to do both this charitable work focused on happiness uh, in, a, in a better way. But And also, you know, I have more time for my kids. I have better decision-making on whether to approach this funder or whether to run this school's project on a daily basis because of the clarity that's brought me. So thank you. So I think that has everything to do with happiness, right? Yeah, it does. It does. But actually, it's it's interesting that I think you're probably one of the few groups that I've come across that make that link between productivity and happiness. And I love the Mm. fact that this podcast has been conversations that bring those two things in. And, you know, in some, some cases it is the mundane or simplistic little things that we change in our lives that make the biggest difference. I mean, when it comes to something like gratitude, I always love that quote, which is, enjoy the little things because one day you may look back and realise they were the big things. That's certainly true of the stuff yeah. we take for granted, yeah. like the, the smile from a child or the, the you know, the, the, the beautiful walk home. But it's also true, I think, of little things around progress. So there's that great re- report that showed that when you ask people what, what's the difference between a good day and a bad day at work, very often it's the, did I make progress today? Mm. That is the biggest differentiator. And I think what you guys, in fact, we do is to see a sense of, yeah, we've made progress today. We have got some new courses set up in this community. We've made a decision on what we're going to do with our school's work. And that's a real sense of accomplishment of something that matters. And I think we don't use that enough in our lives. We, we, we are, I mean, beyond busy is such a brilliant concept because we, we you know, my wife and I in our personal lives and we in our working lives are just frenetic. And that's, that is misery inducing. Yeah. So I love, yeah. I mean, I loved your last podcast recently with Laura about the idea of disconnecting from our digital devices. Yeah. Huge amount of opportunity there to increase happiness and let, letting go of the screen. I worry deeply about my own children's well-being from the context of the digital world and that in itself mm. is another whole podcast. But um, no, it's, it's really interesting, this overlap between wise living on a daily basis and lifelong happiness. Yeah. And in terms of that decision that you took to, to leave the corporate world behind mm. and come and become the director of happiness, I love the idea of being like, you're the boss of happiness, <laughs> the director of happiness. <laughs> yes. cool That's what uh, she called it. I'm not sure I would ever refer to myself <laughs> as that. <laughs> Uh, so, so a couple of questions around that. So, one, what was the what was the expectation of what was going to be different when you left the mm. previous job? 
And so what, what encouraged you to make that leap, I guess, is the question. Yeah, well, let me part the expectation one because it, it sort of comes back to where I was on different parts of the journey. Just to wind back a little bit, I guess I was I was a sort of scientist engineering guy originally. My degree was in electronics. I did a PhD in wireless comms and kind of was really into the sort of technology side of things initially. But I had always been a bit more of a people person. And in, yeah. in that academic world, I kind of realised that what I really wanted to do was to be more people focused. So actually, that's what drove me out of sort of sciencey academic life into commercial life. So I became a management consultant for my sins. Spent a decade or even more potentially doing stuff with companies and in teams around solving problems. And a lot of it was in financial services and in uh, working for stock exchanges and that sort of thing, doing big, you know, big complicated projects that at one level was kind of that sense of accomplishment, but the other level was completely meaningless. And I found myself increasingly stressed and anxious and so I got to the point where I was um, questioning what it was all about. And the f- I mean, there's a few answers to your question about what, what was the trigger to change. The first of these was actually a really profound awakening I had around pain. So I had in a stressful corporate life, really, really bad back pain. Mm. The starting off was like, um, I've got a sore back one day. And then two years later, it was like, oh, I've had constant back pain for two years. Some days I can't get out of bed. I don't run anymore. I don't do sport anymore. I'm just in pieces. And I'd been a really sporty kind of guy. And that was awful. Uh, and again, referring to Kate, my wife, who was further down the path to enlightenment than me at the time, she was retraining again out of corporate life to become a, an osteopath. And she recognised, I think, that my pain was at least partly due to my stress, not my... Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was told by the medical establishment I had a degenerative spinal disorder and a slip disc, and I had MRI scans showing me all this, like, your back is a bit screwed message. But Kate was wiser than that and gave me a book that helped me realise... Well, in fact, when I first got it, I was like, this looks like nonsense. <laughs> uh, the scientist in me was like, don't tell me this is all in my head. But basically, the message was the biggest cause of back pain is tense muscles, not damaged spines. The biggest cause of muscle tension, which is real, it is psychological stress. Mm. And, I, you know, do any of the following sound like you? Um, really care what people think about you? Tick. Hmm. Never talk about your feelings? Tick. Uh, work really hard and you know never slow down. Tick. Oh my god, this book has totally nailed me mm. as a sort of you know people pleasing, not quite alpha type, but you know always going. What but, was the know, book? It was called something like Back Sense, I think. A really really wise book, and it actually introduced me to something that I would now call mindfulness. But this is now 15, maybe 12, 15 years ago, and I started doing breathing exercises, started to worry less about this, and for some lifestyle changes, I was. I, I kid you not, I was running again, pain-free, or almost pain-free within about three weeks. Wow. I've been mean, debilitating pain for two years. I'm now almost back on my feet again, just from basically meditating, changing my lifestyle, changing my expectations. And this was a door opener for me. It's like, oh my God, there's something about mental health and physical health connection. This is really interesting. So that began a journey of me thinking about mental stuff. And I went off and did an MBA and thought I wanted to move into a different sector of business world. Then had this realization, like, I don't want to work in any commercial sector selling people stuff. I want to do something of social value. So that took me to the Carbon Trust, a great, a great passion of mine on environmental issues. Spent some years working there. And within that world, realized that, you know, actually this model of progress we have about, you know, growing, earning more, growing the economy, that was not only breaking the planet, linked to my sustainable interest but it was also making us miserable and so I sort of all this stuff came together for me in a sense of like actually we've got our story wrong both collectively and my own story was wrong as individually as what my priorities were met a really interesting guy called Neil Crofts who wrote a book some time ago called Authentic about making a living by being yourself Um, very much the kind of path I think you've probably followed in building what you've built but he 
he had this intriguing idea that anybody could find their purpose in life if you just look at three questions. And this is what ultimately led to me changing my life. Question one was, what are you actually good at? And my answer was like, I can organize stuff. I've made stuff happen. Question two is, what are you passionate about? And mine had become like, I'm passionate about this idea of what really makes people happy. Because I think, you know, I've discovered that when I left a corporate job to take a pay cut and do something I care about, for example, I'm much happier. And the third question was even more intriguing. It was like, what makes you angry? What would you like to change in the world? Mm. And mine had become, I'm really angry that this narrative we have everywhere is that a good life is about having more and earning more. Because it's A, killing the planet, and B, making us all miserable. And it's not true. I found this out for myself. Although I am reminded of this lovely quote, money doesn't make you happy, but everybody wants to find out for themselves, which I think is quite wise. Uh, but we certainly, you know, certainly got some truth in it. But I, So I, I combine my answers to these questions to sort of say something like, I would love to use my talent for organising stuff, my passion for this question about what really makes for a happy life, to do something about this kind of messed up mm. narrative we have of success. And I parked that in a drawer and thought nothing more of it. And then came across Richard Layard, who's the, one of the co-founders of Action for Happiness, who's this hero of mine, really, wrote this amazing book about... He called it Happiness Lessons from a New Science. And it was all about yeah. changing our narrative and priorities and had a really profound impact on me. He was wanting to start a movement. And I met him and the co-founders, one of which is uh, now Sir Anthony Selden, the guy who's transformed education around, um, around well-being. And I, and I said, you must let me come on board and try and run this for you because they were trying to build a movement. And I'm like, I don't know much about the psychology, really, I don't know much about, you know, where we're at with this, but I've got such a conviction for this. Yeah, and yeah. I wrote down on my, what my life's priority is, is this. So even though when my mum and dad or my wife or my friends are going, why would you leave this job you kind of like to do this crazy happiness thing? I'm like, I've just written this down as my life's purpose. I'm doing this. And, um, and was it just that you'd written that down and then you met Richard like wow, a few weeks later or something and so it was just I'm not there. a big believer in, in, in fate or you know the universe conspires and all that big stuff but I am a believer that when you've noticed something you have a cognitive bias to, to create opportunities yeah, based on that yeah. so because I'd been conscious enough to go I care about this I'd love to find a way of doing this I was on the lookout for opportunities mm. I saw an article he'd written in the Times I got in touch we had a conversation and it flowed from there yeah. so had I not done that exercise of thinking about where I wanted to go with my life I don't think any of this would have happened. But mm. it wasn't, I don't think it was the gods conspiring to make it so. I think it was more that, you know, you make, to some extent, your outlook determines the opportunities that come about. Yeah, it's also a really good practical application of that piece of thinking that you often hear around, it's the people who write down their goals, who, the people who yeah, maybe, write down what their plan maybe. might be, who get somewhere with it. And that's exactly what you've just shown there yeah maybe that's right i mean one of the things again it's a slight aside but one of the challenges with this whole area is that there's 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 evidence-based stuff that makes a difference and we try and focus on the science without it being sciencey and boring um and then there's also perhaps slightly more what some people might call new age or slightly more you know um hard to see the substance behind that stuff in this area so if you look at the self-help shelves and mm, the bookshelf yeah. there's a whole range of stuff from really really empirical interesting grounded stuff to quite away with the fairies things yeah and so an example of that that we've wrestled with over the years is is i don't know if you know Rhonda burns the secret this is yes. a book that's had a huge yeah. impact around the world and basically says if you wish for stuff hard enough it'll happen it's like the Noel Edmonds thing as well, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, like there's all kinds of... ordering. Yeah, yeah. And, and so at one level, if you look at the science, some of what those things are saying are true, which is yeah. when you 
consciously focus on the positive things, and when you make an effort in your relationships, yeah. improvements happen. When you're on the lookout for opportunities, you're more likely to see them. That's absolutely true. There's definitely ways we can reframe our outlook and our psychology to not only make wiser choices, but actually even to change the structure of our brain through neuroplasticity. But no matter how much I wish to be, uh, you know, for the necklace in the shop over there to appear on my <laughs> neck, or however much I wish for my yeah. relative that's got cancer to be better, that isn't actually going to change anything. So that we've just got to be really clear between the stuff that is really grounded in psychology about like yeah. our attitude to change things, and then it's just nonsense about like the universe will conspire to make it so, which is mm. got, yeah. yeah. And so I. I find there's a real tension. And even within our community, there are some people who are much more at one end of the spectrum than the other. And I'm not, I don't want to preach to anyone, but I do think there's some, I do think there's some potentially unhelpful advice in the world of self-help around like, don't worry with the cancer treatment. If you just wish yourself optimistic, you'll be fine. Now, I, I do yeah. believe that if, when you're dealing with major health issues, your outlook will probably have quite a big impact yeah. because mind-body connection is real. But don't, don't turn down the therapy and believe that the universe will save you. Because I don't think that's very wise advice. Yeah, I was watching one of those long-form Louis Theroux documentaries yeah. about people who just give all their money to certain American preachers, and then it's basically give your money to this, and then you don't need to worry about getting cancer treatment. And mm. Just you know, the more you give, the the more it feeds the tree, or something. Some some but but, 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 awful there's, but there's a fascinating piece thing of about psychology um, that people are really it is taken awful. By. But but if you look at the placebo effect, it's fascinating. Mm. So I don't know if you've ever looked into the placebo effect in any detail, because we get really interested in the oil. drug companies are looking at the does my drug outperform the placebo? The most amazing aspects of any medical research at all, almost full stop for me, is like this placebo effect exists yeah. and it's real and it's replicated in every trial. Yeah, which basically is our expectations of something. Are affect the outcome um, and you know this is amazing I mean in fact we've got there's a brilliant book by Joe Marchant I'd recommend talking to Joe if you don't know her she's going to come and do an event with us next year about this mind-body connection but which is when you expect something might change the outcome that belief does have physiological effects it does literally yeah. change things like your your um, you know your immune response to infection how well you might deal with a, a stressor so like although the, the you know there's no evidence that a particular you know, people might, might say, oh, there's absolutely no evidence that homeopathy works, for example. And I'm not going to claim that homeopathy does work because there's lots of studies that are challenging. But, you know, there is definitely evidence that if you believe something, whether it's homeopathy or Reiki or crystal healing or whatever, if you've got a really strong belief in it, there is something about the way your body changes that's real. Mm. So I think one of the big questions is how do we tap into what we know about human psychology to help people make positive changes without having to believe in nonsensical <laughs> treatments? Uh, and you know actually part of that is hope part of that is about yeah. this get away from this narrative of the world's going to the dogs and it's all getting worse I, I really strongly believe that life is better now than it's been at any point in human history in terms of longevity uh, in terms of uh, healthcare in terms of many many things we value and yet we're in a media culture that makes us think it's awful and makes us lash out and have this fear and I think this shift from fear to hope or even love might some might say has really profound psychological and social mm. impacts. I think it's a perfect place to to end up. Before we finish, though, it feels like there's a whole bunch of stuff that people can get their hands mm. on here that can yeah. help with asking these questions and help with some of that those kind of practical exercises around happiness. So uh, just direct people to uh, where they can find more about Action for Happiness and maybe any particular resources that you want to highlight. Thank well. you. Well... 
any search online for Action Happiness should bring up a series of things. I mean, our main website, actionhappiness.org, has got lots of resources and so on, and you'd find the 10 Keys framework and, and other things. Uh, we do have a big online community, so you'll find us on Facebook and Twitter in particular, where there's I think, about a million people um, combined. I mean, the, the really practical things, I mean, I think the most important people in this movement are the many thousands of volunteers who step forward to make things happen. I'm always blown away and moved by the number of volunteers who give hours and hours of their time to, for example, run community courses, these eight-week courses, or bring ideas into their schools where they teach, into their organisations and so on. So we would absolutely love it if anyone listening to this would like to consider becoming a volunteer course leader. People get together in pairs, they run things locally. The volunteers always tell us it's a really rewarding experience. I've, I've run a few of these myself. It is amazing when you get these small groups of people together. So and is there it, an easy place online to find where your nearest course is? Yes, yeah, so if you go to actionhappiness.org and either yeah. click on courses or just do actionhappiness.org slash course, yeah. then there's a map and cool. you can either find a course near you or you could register say, I'd like a course near me or you can register say, I'd like to run a course. Now, at the moment, you know, you might look at the map and go, oh, there's nothing near me and, you know, apologies, we're still finding our feet and, and we're hoping to see many, many more. But there have now been many hundreds of courses in you know, many hundreds of different locations and... Um, you know, often when people have gone in touch and said we'd like to have one near them, we've managed to make that happen. So yeah. uh, we'd love to hear people. But, you know, even just getting involved in the online community, helping to spread the word, there's all kinds of freely available resources from a, a downloadable version of our 10 Keys guidebook uh, to postcards and posters and things people can share. So, um, you know, I guess the essential idea here is that whoever we are, whatever our own mental health situation is, there are things we can do that make a difference. You can improve your own well-being, and that might be through mindfulness or gratitude or kindness. But actually, even more importantly, we can affect the world around us because we can be kinder to our own families. We can reach out in our communities. We can change a culture at work. And actually, when we do that, we have more of a ripple effect than we realise. It has this knock-on impact. And so please do get involved uh, because not only will you potentially be happier, but also you can really, really shift people around you in positive ways too. And it's been super inspiring chatting and uh, I, I'm particularly struck by that whole thing of it's there's an important motivation that people have around creating autonomy. Yes. And also really struck by that whole thing about when you start to give or create kindness, then it has this kind of ripple effect. So it Absolutely. helps you and it helps other people. And I think, yes. I think obviously the more that we can get people doing that, if only the resources of the media were more targeted around how to spread more of that and less fear i think would be in a I very better place that so, would uh, be a wonderful thing so let's make it so so very inspiring <laughs> chatting and anything we can do to to push that out is obviously a good thing so mark thank you very much and likewise thank you so much Graham. Thanks again to Mark for being on the show. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation and I'm looking forward to continuing our work with Action for Happiness over the next year. And also thanks to Mark Stedman, who's my producer on the show. Uh, just thank you for all your support, Mark, over this year as we uh, have hit the last episode of the year. Just uh, always worth throwing that one in. And if you're interested in podcasting, Mark just knows everything about that. You can find him at Bloomsbury Digital. Go and check out the Bloomsbury Digital site. And we'll put all of this, links to various different stuff in the show notes. So if you go to getbeyondbusy.com, getbeyondbusy.com, everything I'm uh, talking about during the interview there and all the stuff I'm about to say, you'll find links to that in the show notes as well. So getbeyondbusy.com. So two other things I want to talk about is I'm actually doing an event with Action for Happiness in Brighton. 
and it is in January 2018. So January the 9th uh, in the evening. Uh, it's at the latest music bar in Brighton, and it's yeah Tuesday, January the 9th. So if you're in Brighton, I'd love you to come and say hi. Um, there's uh, I've actually just clicked on the site, and there's quite a few. It's a free event, and quite a lot of the tickets have already gone, but there are still some tickets left. So if you go to uh, it's it's through meetup.com uh, Action for Happiness Brighton and you'll find it and we'll put a link to that in the show notes here uh, but you can sign up for the Beyond Busy event with Action for Happiness Tuesday the 9th of January in Brighton and if you're in London on just clicking my mouse over the next one Tuesday the 6th of February uh, I'm doing an event with General Assembly again it's free and the title is just How to Be a Productivity Ninja so it'll be me talking about some of the stuff from the Productivity Ninja book and I'd love some Beyond Busy listeners to come and say hi so if you're in London uh, it's in Oldgate basically Oldgate right by Oldgate East Tube and funny for me because I used to live in Whitechapel just up the road and Whitechapel at that stage wasn't really much of a hub for kind of co-working spaces and cool tech stuff and all the rest of it and there wasn't even a there wasn't even a place to buy proper coffee in Whitechapel when I lived there and now that just seems like a laughable sort of it seems like a lot more than the few years ago that it was so if you're in London uh Tuesday the 6th of February how to be how to be a productivity ninja with General Assembly uh come along and say hi at that one as well it's free and you can sign up via the General Assembly website so both of those, we'll put the links in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. Do check those out. And we'll be back in 2018. Uh, the next episode, continuing the happiness theme, we've got uh, Lawrence and Carlos from the Happy Startup School, which is based down here in Brighton, uh, doing business in a happier, better way. And we're going to be talking to them. Uh, really amazing conversation. Two of the most present, thoughtful people uh, I've had the pleasure to sit down with in a long time. So really looking forward to sharing that one with you at the start of 2018. So this is the last one for the year. So finally, it just falls on me to say, have a great Christmas, have a great uh, restful period and reflective period. Do some reflection on where you want to be next year. I think often we we get into the the cycle of the parties and all that stuff and we forget to really uh, reflect back and be grateful for what we've done over the course of the year and what we have in our lives, right? I think uh, we often just don't have that opportunity to uh, to say to ourselves, do you know what? It's a wonderful life. So that's my cheesy, cheesy Christmas uh, little greeting for you. Uh, and all the best for your planning and scheming and hustling for 2018. I'll see you the other side of new year with a whole load more episodes of beyond busy and just finally just thank you for listening through this year thanks for your support uh, it's been a big interesting uh, journey of a year for me with a big sabbatical period a uh, very intense working period at the end and just intensely grateful for um, all of your support whether you're a first time listener uh, just having your attention over the last hour just means the world to me if you're someone who's listened to a lot of these episodes and you tweet me and email me about it and all that sort of stuff that means the world to me too and so just thank you thank you thank you uh, for all of that looking forward to loads more in 2018 i've got to prepare my uh, my pitch document for my publishers um, early in january as well on the uh, books and various other things i'll tell you about that next year but have a great christmas have a great new year i'll see you on the other side that's it from me that's it for this episode of beyond busy catch you soon bye for now mm-hmm.